This morning we're uh, embarking on a new sermon series. As uh, Pastor Tim mentioned earlier, we're going through the Gospel of Luke. So we've concluded our time we spent this summer in Genesis 1 through 3, and now we're going to start through Luke. But before we get to Luke chapter 1, I want us first to go to the end of Matthew chapter 28. So if you want to turn there with me or open your app there with me, Matthew 28 is the end of Matthew's gospel about Jesus. And as you might expect, the end of the gospel of Matthew, uh, it's where we read about Jesus' last days uh, in his life on earth. So his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. After his resurrection, he, he gathered uh, his disciples around him and he gave us these famous words that, that have come to be known as the Great Commission. So I want to start here this morning, uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And those words have been the marching orders for the followers of Jesus from the moment they were spoken up through today. They continue to kind of be those marching orders for us. And they will continue to be that until the moment when Jesus returns. Followers of Jesus have rightly been living out the Great Commission throughout history. But if you think about it, this all-important commission is kind of vague in nature as far as the specific details of it how it is to be carried out. All we are told is to go throughout the world making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey Jesus. It's really a pretty general command when you think about it. And I would say that it's probably by design due to the changing contexts and cultures in, in which believers would find themselves throughout history. A commission is, is needed that can be adapted to all of those settings across the centuries. But let's put ourselves back in the, the shoes of the disciples who first heard these words as Jesus spoke them. So those, those disciples have followed Jesus around for three years. Uh, they're probably at this point still processing all that took place during that last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem where they saw him crucified and buried and then resurrected back to life. And then Jesus told them, okay, go out and make more disciples just like you guys, just like yourself. Go make more disciples. I, I wonder if they felt overwhelmed by that commissioning that they received from Jesus. I wonder if they had a clear sense of how each of them would carry out that commission. And church tradition records for us what happened to some of these disciples. Uh, tradition holds that Andrew, for example, traveled north into what's Russia and shared the gospel there. Uh, tradition holds that Thomas went east. He went to Syria. He went to Iraq. And then he ended up in India sharing the gospel there. Uh, Matthew and John, we know one of the ways they carried out the Great Commission, they, they wrote Gospels, Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John. So not only 
Do they carry out the Great Commission through their personal interactions and sharing the gospel, you know, verbally, one-on-one, but they, they, they did it through the written record of Jesus. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, likewise, is believed to be based upon the personal account of the Apostle Peter as he told it to Mark. So kind of behind Mark, you have Peter living out the Great Commission. So at least, at least three of the original disciples had a hand in carrying out the Great Commission through the written texts about the life of Jesus. But it wasn't just the 12 disciples who carried out the Great Commission. And again, remember, this is marching orders for believers down throughout history. But there were others who, through written texts, carried out the Great Commission. Paul, for example, many of the letters in the New Testament written by Paul, who became a Christian a bit later, not one of the original disciples, but later on had his Damascus Road experience, and he carried out the commission through planting churches and then following up and writing letters to these churches and to individuals. And likewise, we get to Luke. Luke was not an original disciple of Jesus. He came to faith later on, but he sought to fulfill the Great Commission as well through compiling a written record of the life of Jesus. And so, as we begin uh, this journey through Luke's gospel, I, I thought it worthwhile to, to briefly talk about Luke the person. Who is this Luke who, who writes a, a gospel for us? We can learn a lot about the 12 disciples by reading in the gospels and reading, you know, seeing how the disciples interacted with Jesus and one another and how they interacted with others. Uh, we can learn a lot about Paul by reading his letters to the churches and by reading Acts and the missionary journeys there. Uh, but what do we know about Luke? Part of what we know about Luke is, is pieced together from Paul's letters. So if you read in those letters, uh, in Colossians chapter 4, for example, verse 14, that's where we learn that Luke was a physician. He's a physician. We know from Philemon verse 24 that Paul considered Luke to be a fellow worker. So there's a relationship there, a, a co-worker kind of relationship between Paul and Luke. But even deeper than that, we can be confident from 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Luke was with Paul at the end of his life. So many scholars believe that 2 Timothy is the last letter in the New Testament chronologically that Paul wrote that he wrote that uh, as he was imprisoned in Rome for the second time, just before he was to be martyred at the command of Nero. And there's a tone to 2 Timothy that kind of suggests that Paul realizes that his end is near. And it's in that context where Paul states that Timothy is the, uh, uh, excuse me, that Luke is the only one with him in that difficult place, that Luke is there with him. So we know that it wasn't just a co-worker relationship that Luke had with Paul, but that there was a deep friendship there, that Luke was with Paul through his most trying times. And another part that, uh, of what we know about Luke is that he most likely traveled around with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. So if both Luke and Acts are written by Luke, as, as many Bible scholars would say they are, then there's some curious sections in the book of Acts where, where the pronouns used change from they and them to we and us. So what it tells us is that the author of Acts, 
Luke, seems to have been present during some of those experiences, some of those missionary journeys that, that Paul took. So, so we can safely assume that Luke wasn't just a friend and even a companion of Paul, but that he, that he at times traveled around the world with Paul. He was someone who labored with Paul on his missionary journeys, both the ones recorded in Acts and maybe ones that Paul did later in his life after the book of Acts. And so that, that detail about Luke the person, I would say, is important for a couple of reasons. First, the, the early church looked for apostolic authority when they were agreeing upon the works to be included in the New Testament canon. One of the questions they asked themselves was, does this book have, does it trace itself back to an apostle, apostolic authority? So Luke himself wasn't one of the 12 disciples, but this traveling around with Paul gave it that credibility, that Luke was a very close companion, co-worker with Paul. And then second, what this tells us is that, uh, and we're going to explore this a bit more shortly, but all those travels with Paul would have given Luke great opportunity to interview those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life. We never get the sense that Luke himself was an eyewitness because he came to faith later, but he was able to interview many who were eyewitnesses to Jesus and get their stories and compile these into his gospel. And so we are truly indebted to Luke for his work in carrying out the Great Commission in the way that he did. If, if I were to ask any of you, before we started talking about Luke, who wrote the largest chunk of the New Testament? I think the most popular answer would have been Paul, because he wrote a lot of letters in our New Testament. Uh, another popular answer might have been John, because John wrote a gospel, and he wrote three letters, and he wrote the book of Revelation. But the person who wrote the largest chunk of the New Testament is Luke. So Luke and Acts together uh, combined to form over 25% of our New Testament. So, so we're indebted to Luke and the work that he did in carrying out the Great Commission. So that is Luke. That's kind of the biographical sketch of Luke, the person, but, but we need to shift gears and talk about the gospel of Luke. And so to do that, let, let's, tune, let's turn to Luke chapter 1 and kind of set the stage by reading the first four verses because, because Luke gives us some information about why he's writing, what he's writing, how he went about doing this. And we'll look at this before we dive into uh, we see Luke start diving into the life of Jesus. So Luke chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, were, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now the Gospel of Luke, and, and along with volume two, Acts, they were both written to an individual named Theophilus. And there's so much speculation about who this Theophilus is. And the short answer is, we don't know. We don't know for sure. Uh, some would say he's got a Greek name, so maybe he's a Greek convert to Christianity. Um, 
some would assume that he's a high-ranking, maybe wealthy patron who, who asked Luke, who authorized and funded Luke to take on this work. Uh, but we just don't know. We're not quite sure who Theophilus is other than he is the original recipient of this gospel and of the book of Acts. But when it comes to Luke and Acts, it, it's clear to us that Luke the person was more than just a physician. He's not just Dr. Luke. He was a very talented historian. Uh, he didn't just compile stories about Jesus. As he said here, he, he strived to put everything together in an orderly account that would be beneficial to Theophilus in giving him certainty regarding his faith. So presumably Theophilus would have, would have heard the gospel through an oral presentation like, like was probably common at that time. But perhaps Theophilus doubted a little bit. Are, are these stories that I'm hearing about Jesus true? How can I know for sure that what I'm hearing is, is true and accurate? And so Luke undertook the work of writing a, a gospel in order to kind of go to the source, go to these eyewitnesses, go to the source and, and present to Theophilus a compelling case for why he could have certainty regarding what he had heard about Jesus from others. And when you think about it, that, that method of, of, of going to the source, interviewing people, that's, it's clear that Luke did that throughout, uh, throughout his work, throughout the Gospel of Luke. He, he's much like a field reporter interviewing eyewitnesses, just like that, in order to, to put together a clear description of what took place. And, and again, due to Luke's relationship with Paul and his traveling around the world with Paul, he would have had ample opportunity to conduct those interviews. And so I would say, I would say it is highly probable that Luke interviewed at least a few of the disciples themselves, those 11 original disciples. Judas was no longer there at this point, but I think it's probable Luke interviewed at least some of the 11 disciples. I, th I would argue that Luke probably interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. Right? I mean, uh, because we spent the last Advent season in Luke 1 and 2, we're not going to look in depth at the Christmas story today, but, but in reading the account of Jesus' birth in Luke 1 and 2, it just has this feel of details being included that only Mary herself would have known. It just sure seems like Luke was sitting down with Mary, interviewing her about all these things that took place. That, that, I think it provides a good explanation for why we have an account about Jesus' childhood in the Gospel of Luke. It's the only account that we have in all four Gospels. I think it's because Luke was sitting face to face with Mary, asking her to share her experience, things that went on. And, and it's maybe because of all these eyewitness accounts that Luke's gospel is sometimes known as the gospel of individuals. You'll hear it worded that way or phrased that way sometimes. We get stories about Jesus' uncle, Zacharias, his aunt Elizabeth, his cousin John. We're told about Mary Magdalene and, and Joanna and Susanna, these women who followed Jesus and provided for him. Uh, we, we see Jesus welcomed into the home of Mary and Martha. Uh, we, we meet a man named Zacchaeus who climbed a tree to see Jesus and then hosted Jesus in his home. It's a, it's a gospel filled with stories of individuals. And then even more important than just being a gospel of individuals, the individuals spoken of in Luke are often outcasts. 
They're often, they're often poor or sick or, or women and children. And so what we see, what we see over and over again is Jesus caring for and uplifting those who are outcasts in society. And he does that, we, we see it in all four Gospels, but especially in the Gospel of Luke. It maybe stands out in a way where it doesn't as much in the other, four, in the other three Gospels. The theme is present in all of them, but not to the degree that it is in Luke. And, and, and I, I kind of want to hit pause right here and say that, that this is something that's going to be so important to our study of Luke as we go through it. Um, if you only take two things away from this morning, this needs to be one of them. That the way in which Luke communicates Jesus' interactions with the outcasts of society demands that we take a good look at ourselves individually and, and ourselves collectively and consider two things, really, our own value to God and the value of every person on earth to God. The way that Jesus interacts with outcasts needs to stand out to us, needs to cause us to reflect. Stories about the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son um, Jesus' interactions with women and children, Jesus' care for and his association with the poor, they beckon us to look at ourselves and to look at how we treat those who are cast out by our own society today. And, and I'll warn us, Luke is going to be relentless in this. It's going to happen over and over again. We're not going to be able to walk away from Luke and say anything other than all are pursued by Jesus. All are pursued by Jesus. All are welcome to come to him. And in fact, it is those who are rich and powerful who are, who are often the ones shown rejecting Jesus in Luke's gospel. So that's a theme that we're going to see coming up again and again throughout the gospel of Luke. So that's the background on Luke the person. That's the background on the gospel that he wrote. Hopefully that all kind of helps us read the book with, with a little more first century perspective as we go through this sermon series. What I want to do for the rest of this morning is look at a bit more background, but this time the background that Luke gives us on Jesus. So that's really what the first two chapters of his gospel are. Background on Jesus as far as background leading up to his active ministry. As I already said, we spent Advent last year looking at the Christmas story in Luke 1 and 2. And if you remember last Advent, we looked at specifically the songs in those chapters, Zechariah, Mary, Simeon. Today what I want to do is to be sure to focus on how, how Luke emphasizes both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus in these opening two chapters. So when it comes to Jesus' divinity, it really shines through in the way that different people describe Jesus. Remember, Luke is probably interviewing these people. And so some of the descriptions here, for example, in chapter 1, verse 43, Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of my Lord, of course, in reference to the unborn Jesus. That's a divine description. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 69, Zechariah refers to the unborn Jesus as the horn of salvation from the house of David. In chapter 2, verse 11, the angels refer to the newborn Jesus as the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, 
more divine recognition. Uh, in verse 17, after visiting baby Jesus, the shepherds kind of agree with the statement that the angels made because they go and they make it known to others. Uh, in verses 29 through 32, Simeon's song, he, he refers to Jesus as God's salvation and a light of revelation to the Gentiles. In chapter 2, verse 38, the prophetess Anna considered Jesus to be the redemption of Jerusalem. It's all these divine descriptions of Jesus. This is no ordinary human boy that was born. This is a divine boy as well. So Luke really leaves us no question as to the divinity of Jesus. All of these individuals who, who are shown in these opening two chapters all point to the fact that Jesus is fully divine. He was, he was conceived through supernatural means and he is the son of God who would bring salvation to the world. There's no question there. But equally as important and, and perhaps even more emphasized by Luke in these opening chapters is the humanity of Jesus. Uh, something unique about Luke's gospel is that twice in chapter two, he mentions Jesus growing growing physically, uh, growing mentally, as any human being would do. Uh, and, it, and it might feel awkward to think about Jesus in that way, but, but his, his body went through puberty, his brain went through further development, just like any other human being, human body would have done. Jesus is fully human, and Luke notes, uh, he notes that through those, through those short statements that he makes. We rightly think about Jesus being the divine Son of God, but we have to also rightly think about him as fully human as well. And, and I think, you know, as a, as a further sign of Jesus' humanity, Luke, like any good historian would probably do, located the birth of Jesus within human history. So in chapter 1, Chapter 1, verse uh, 5, we're told that Herod was the king of Judea at that time. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that Augustus was the Caesar in Rome, that Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 3, Luke will, will reference Tiberius Caesar, ruling at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And he'll also name four more regional rulers, and he'll name two high priests in Jerusalem. Those are all historically verifiable facts that place the birth of Jesus within human history. And so when you go back to, to Theophilus, right, the recipient of this book, I think it would have helped him, helped help to give him some certainty, right, about Jesus being a real person who walked on the earth, right? All of these, all these rulers, these leaders can be verified. You can go back in history and look places outside of the Bible reference them. So Luke says this is when all of those things happened. He was born as a human within human history. But Luke also shows that he was, he was born as a human within a human family. So not only are we given the names of his mother and father, Mary and Joseph, but we're given the names of his uncle and his aunt and his cousin as well. Jesus was born into a family just like you and me. And just like you and me, Jesus' family was dealing with some issues, 
We've got issues in our families, right? His family was dealing with issues too. Just think about it. His aunt Elizabeth was barren. That's an issue. His uncle Zechariah doubted God when an angel appeared to him with a message in the temple. His mother Mary was pregnant prior to marriage. Again, supernaturally, but that was an issue at that time to be dealt with for sure. His father Joseph wasn't his biological father, just something that his family would have had to deal with. His family was probably poor, and, and we know that because in, in chapter 2, verse 24, when they go to the temple, they, they bring a sacrifice of two turtle doves or two young pigeons, which if you go back to Leviticus chapter 12, that's the offering that is allowed for someone who can't afford a lamb and a turtle dove or a pigeon. If you couldn't afford the lamb, then you could bring two birds instead of a lamb and one bird. You can jump ahead to uh, the story at the end of chapter 2 with Jesus' childhood. His parents left him in Jerusalem after, after a Passover feast. That, that's a situation. Any kid that's ever been left at church on Sunday morning knows that uh, it's not the most pleasant thing in the world, right? You kind of know what that's about. So, so Jesus was born into a human family that was dealing with stuff, just like our human families deal with stuff too. You know, at times we can be tempted to say, well, yeah, he's fully human, but he's fully God. So he, you know, he would have been immune from all these other kinds of things. Jesus was born into that just like we are as well. And kind of, you know, speaking about being left in Jerusalem, I want to conclude this morning by looking at that story, this story that Luke includes from the childhood of Jesus now, if it's true, as I think it might be, that Luke interviewed Mary, they surely talked about different stories from Jesus' childhood. And, and it makes total sense to me that, that that's why Luke records the miraculous birth of Jesus. He's getting the account firsthand from Mary. But when picking one lone story to record about Jesus' childhood, why that one? And how thrilled must Mary have been that the story that's included is the one that doesn't shine her in a really good light, right? We left Jesus back in Jerusalem at the temple. Why pick that story? I don't want to, to discount at all the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on Luke as he's writing the gospel. I fully believe he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we also can't overlook the human element as Luke writes. There's a reason that he's writing this story, that he's including this story from the childhood of Jesus. So I would encourage you to turn with me to, to Luke chapter 2. Verse 41 is where this story starts. So Jesus was 12 years old. He traveled with his parents to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Uh, we're told that that was a, a regular occurrence. That was their custom. Now, due to the nature of traveling and the distance from Nazareth to Jerusalem, that was a significant distance, uh, Jesus and his parents, they would have been traveling in a caravan with family, with friends, with, with probably neighbors from Nazareth. Uh, it, would have allowed, it would have allowed the group to care for one another as they made the journey together. It would have been a safer way to travel the roads during that time. And so then after the feast, that caravan departs to return back to Nazareth, but, and both Joseph and, and Mary seem to have thought that Jesus was somewhere else in the traveling party. I mean, we can only speculate how big it was, how many people there were, 
but they both thought that he was maybe with each other, like usually happens when a child gets left at church, right? Or they thought he was within the, the caravan somewhere. But after a day of travel, they realize he's not. He's not there, so they go back to Jerusalem to look for him. And so let's pick it up in verse 46. It says, after three days, they found him. So this is quite the search. He was, it was a day before they knew, and then it was three days until they found him. So it's been four days. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw them, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now, admittedly, this is a little bit of speculation at least, but I think the key to understanding Luke's motives in including this story can be found in the words that Jesus spoke. Not only are these the first recorded words of Jesus that we have from his life, I mean, he's 12 years old at this point, so this is the first time we ever hear Jesus speak, but Luke also notes in verse 50 that his parents didn't understand what he was saying. So when Jesus spoke those words, Mary and Joseph were confused by that. And, and Luke noting that is likely a, a subtle way for him to prompt his readers, Theophilus specifically, to give deeper consideration to Jesus' words so that we do understand what he's saying. It's kind of a literary device that can be used. When you note that somebody in the story doesn't understand, the reader is supposed to say, okay, how can I understand what's going on here? So I think Jesus' words are the key to understanding why Luke includes this story. So he responds to his parents by telling them that he must be in his father's house. And, and, and odds are the Bible translation you're looking at right now, you, you've got a footnote at the end of verse 49. And that footnote probably says something about my father's business or my father's affairs, that the phrase can also be translated that way. The, the Greek wording doesn't specifically refer to the temple. When it says, I must be in my father's house, or, you know, referring to the temple, the word's not there in the Greek. But because Jesus was found in the temple, a legitimate way to translate what is there is to say, I must be in my father's house, must be in the temple. The more literal way to translate it would be, I must be in the things of my father, or I must be about my father's business, like the footnote says there. So, so let's remove some of the more specific details and, and just think about the basic flow of that story. There were people looking for Jesus. They were looking for Jesus. And at first they couldn't find him, but once they looked for him among his father's business, they found him. So why does Luke include this seemingly odd story about Jesus' childhood? Well, there's people in Luke's day looking for the Messiah, Theophilus being one of them, but many others too, looking for Jesus, looking for the Messiah. And if a person is going to find Jesus, then they're going to find him doing his father's business. 
That's the only place that he will be found. And what Luke is going to go on to show in his gospel is that his father's business is calling people to himself. That's what we're going to see over and over again. But not just Jews, not just religious leaders, not just the people who it seems like God should call to himself, but Gentiles and poor and, and sick, women, children, tax collectors, sinners, all those who, were, who in that society were outcasts. Jesus is going to be about the business of calling them to himself. That's where we're going to find him as we go through this gospel. So we have to be ready for that. We have to be ready for it as we journey through this book. I think that's why Luke includes this story, to get us ready for what we're going to see in the, in the pages to follow. And not just be ready, but be ready to be challenged by it. To be challenged regarding how we might typically think about Jesus himself. Uh, to be ready to be challenged how we might think about those who are outcasts. Be ready to be challenged regarding how we might think about ourselves. So, so the life, the ministry of Jesus, it, it, is, a, it is a wonderful thing. And I, and I know we're going to be both challenged and blessed as we, as we read through Luke's orderly account of it together. And so we're going to be taking this journey uh, during this sermon series as we go throughout his gospel. So be ready for that. That's a little bit of what's coming. We're going to see Jesus caring. Uh, if you can kind of use the phrase, for the least, the last, and the lost. It's a phrase that really comes from Matthew, but Luke shows it so, so well in his gospel. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's continue to give praise to this Jesus that Luke is presenting to us. God, as we come to you this morning, we, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us through the pages of the Bible. But we thank you as well for those who, who you worked through to write these words. Specifically this morning, we think about Luke and, and how you worked in his life and the interviews that he would have had and, and, and the way that he recorded uh, the events of your life, the sayings of your life. God, we're blessed because of that. I pray that as we take time to study these words moving forward, that, uh, that you'd be illuminating our hearts and our minds, uh, that our, our picture of you and our understanding of you would, would not be the same as when we started this journey, but that it would be more in line, would be more accurate based on who you are. So God, I ask that you would bless us in that way as we go through this. God, we, we give you praise. Um, when it comes down to it, we're all outcasts. God, but you call us to yourself. You've come to us. You've come to serve us. You've come to lead us and guide us, and we're so thankful for that. God, as we continue to worship you this morning, do so through song, and do that as we depart from here as well. Would you be guiding us? Would you help us to honor you through doing that? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, 